Have you ever in your entire life seen anything so beautiful? I'm sorry, I don't know anything about stamps. Live from the Jefferson R. Burdick Memorial Wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, this is the award-winning stamp show here today, episode number 233, brought to you by the Southern Nevada Philatelic Research Center. This is Tom. This is Cash. This is Scott. This is Mark. And who is Jefferson Burdick? Who? So, so, so you're saying that in your introduction, the Jefferson R. Burdick Memorial Wing of the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York is an actual place? Not I'm something not saying that. that. I'm not just, something that Cash that. made up? I don't think it's... A, it, I'm not sure. <laughs> but here we are. Here we are. Here we are. Yeah. We're sitting here in New York. So who is Jefferson Burdick? Syracuse electrician Jefferson Burdick donated his entire collection of approximately 303,000 advertising inserts, postcards, and posters to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York. The Jefferson R. Burdick collection constitutes 20% a primary part of the museum's collection of ephemera and helps the history of popular printmaking in the United States. I'm sorry. It helps tell the history of popular printmaking. <laughs> hmm. So here we that, are. That, yeah, that's kind of interesting because I, I I guess he collected a lot of different things from baseball cards and tobacco cards to to cartoons and oh, everything else. Well, spoiler alert! Hold on. Why don't we let Tom finish up a little bit here, and okay. then we can. Then we I can. always do the spoiler. <laughs> Well, Burdick spent 15 years in the museum creating a catalog structure for various types of contemporary advertising material. In organizing the albums, Burdick adhered to a strict cataloging system that he devised and published as the American Card Catalog. Is anything like the Dewey Decimal System? Pretty close. Oh, cool. Burdick's method remains the standard system used by all collectors of early American printed ephemera. Okay, quick history... Question. Well, trivia question. What is ephemera? Anyone? Ephemera is popular printed material and stuff that is not meant to be kept, but is then collected and saved. Hold Very on. Good. I'm going to... Like orange crate labels? Hold on. What is... Uh, like Calendars. Things that are meant to be used and thrown away, basically. Ah. Oops, I typed in ephemeral. Ephemera, things that exist or are used or enjoyed for only a short time. Interesting. Items of collectible memorabilia, typically written or printed, uh, that were originally expected to have only a short-term usefulness or popularity. Cereal boxes? Yeah. Yeah. Concert tickets. Baseball cards. Yeah, see, well, baseball, baseball cards baseball would not cards be... to me is more of a... It's a thing memorializing a certain player, but concert tickets. There's people... I mean, you know, I used to... When I was going to concerts as a younger time, <laughs> I went to a lot of them, and I used to keep all my ticket stubs. Yeah. 
before, of course, you know, cell phones and scanning your QR code at the gate. Well, I mean, to collect a mail. Yeah, but stamps are clearly ephemera then. Yes, they are. I mean, they're they, meant to be used and discarded. Yeah. As with the envelope, but not the letter inside. The letter inside then would not be ephemera. Sure. It's, it's a form of read communication and away. read and thrown away. Right. Unless yeah. somebody mailed you the deed to your house or... Yeah, so a deed would not be... A deed with uh, the revenue stamps on it and everything is not ephemera. That's it. I'm going to start but collecting you, money mailers. But yeah. <laughs> once, once you sell the property, that deed is invalidated and then becomes ephemera. Yeah, but... Because it, it's it, it has no value after that. Yeah, but it says short term. I don't think... Well, I, if you flip through your house pretty quick, I guess it could be well, ephemera. But, but short term just means it's not meant to be saved. It's meant to be saved as long as it's useful and then discarded. Yeah. A deed well, is... Uh, but a deed can be useful for six months or 50 years, but then it's you can discard it yeah. because it's no longer needed. So we all collect ephemera. Well, the head of the museum stated that Burdick's collection fulfills the mission set out by the founding curator of the Prince Department, who understood that a truly encyclopedic collection throws open the gamut of human life and endeavor and should be like the library of a professor of great literature, composed of a corpus of works in themselves distinctly works of art and filled out and illustrated by many other objects. That was a mouthful. <laughs> oh, I'm not done. Oh. <laughs> Composed of a corpus of works in themselves, distinctly works of art, and filled out and illustrated by many other objects that have only technical, historical, social, or religious importance. Now that was a mouthful. Yeah. Big words hard. <laughs> in addition, Burdick was a baseball card collector, and he created the catalog for baseball cards, also with the American Card Catalog, otherwise known as the ACC which is still used today by collectors and dealers. The famed T206 Honus Wagner baseball card received its popularized name from the set's designation in the ACC. Interesting story, $2.1 million card is rare because Honus Wagner was against smoking, so he had his cigarette card pulled from the printing. Yeah, this is a... This subject was suggested by my son, Sean. Shout out to Sean. Uh, he saw it on Vsauce, uh, which if you're aware of the YouTube channel Vsauce, it's incredibly nice. Um, at the end of this, pull your car over, go uh, do a search for Vsauce 2, The Invention of Collecting. It's a fantastic video on stamp or collecting, actually everything collecting. And it also talks about Mr. Burdick? Uh, a lot, a lot. And what it, is it about seven or eight minutes long? Uh, I think it's more like 12, 12 minutes long. It's but, not a long video, but it's very interesting. Oh yeah. And, uh, it gave a different definition that I had never heard of collecting, but it said collecting is selecting, gathering and keeping of object of subjective value. And I thought that that was really, really well done. Also, it goes into a lot of the psychology 
of stamp collecting and being separated from your mother and therefore you collect stamps? Well, not a lot, but <laughs> enough to, uh, just enough to be interesting and not enough to be annoying. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so other than stamps then, because Burdick collected a lot of, he collected baseball cards, but he collected a lot of other stuff so much that he filled 20% of a museum. So I thought it would be great to talk about what other things we collect because everybody knows we collect stamps, but what else do we collect? And Tom, why don't you start it off? Cause I know what you collect. Disney pins. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about that even last week though. Yeah. So go into it just a little bit. Give a, give an overview of what Disney pin collecting is. What are they and stuff? Well, it actually, it started, I think, back in the late 80s, early 90s. They came out with, um, I think it was popularized when uh, the same time that Olympic pins started coming out. And you'd go to like the Olympic villages and there was a lot of people with these Olympic pins that they had received and people were trading them. They weren't buying and selling so much as going, ooh, that one's cool. I don't have that. Ooh, that one's cool. I don't have that. Hey, let's trade. You know, and Disney, I think, kind of saw a way to do that and make money because it, their form of trading and collecting, A, makes them a lot of money because a lot of characters are really popular and Disney's done a lot of characters over the years. And also, it gets guests interacting with some of the cast members because Disney cast members would start wearing these lanyards or these little hip things that are like little six by six squares covered in pins. And the theory was you would go to the Disney store and you would buy your own lanyard with some really simplistic, fun kind of pins. And they came out with these sets that you could only get from cast members. They weren't for sale anywhere. And you would go in and you would, you know, take your little, little pins that you bought in the store and you'd trade them with the different Disney cast members kind of so forcing interaction and, you know, giving guests another experience. And of course this just made them a lot of money real fast and took off. Yeah. And I don't, I don't think they did it for the money though. I've seen a lot of Disney stuff. They don't do a heck of a lot for the money cause they get so much money from everything else. It's Disney. They do everything for the money. Well, yeah, but they do a lot of things to increase the interaction to give you more things to do at Disneyland than just ride the rides. Right. And you know, if they made if they made a million dollars off of pins, that's, you know, a drop in the bucket to them. Well, because you can go to Disneyland or Disney World and spend a day or two days there and basically do everything and then well, what's the point in going back exactly, next month? Exactly. Exactly. Well, now you have a reason to go back next week or next month because you meet a different cast member, find a different pin, things like that. So yeah. it gets you coming well, was, back to the park more often. I was telling Marcus' story the other day. Um, when I first started getting into pins, they're, they do these, they're called Hidden Mickey sets, and it's usually a group of five or six pins, and they're all of the same motif. Like one of them was the Casey Jr. Circus Train, the, the ride. And they had a pin for each of the cars, you know, from the engine to the caboose. And they were a little different. So that was one set. And they came out with like three or four sets. And they would do this like two to, I forget if it was quarterly. They moved it to only twice a year. They'd come out with like six sets. Mm -hmm. And it would be like twice a year they'd come out. 
But when I first started, they came out with an alphabet set. So 26 different pins in the set. No, oh, it's a big set. And each one for had had a letter in a, in you know capital letter in uh, some color, and then it had a little portrait of a character. Like A was Alice in Wonderland. C was the Cheshire Cat. And some of these, because of their popularity among collectors and fans of certain movies, became ridiculously hard to find. Let me guess. P and T were the biggies. T Probably. for Tigger. T for Tigger and P for Pooh? No. Um, P, I forget who was on P that time. It's the second time they had come out with one. I don't know if it was Peter Pan or, oh. or, or who it was. But there are a lot of Disney cat fans. Mm. And um, I mean, Cheshire Col- Cat? Cheshire Cat was one of them. Um, the cat from cat Cinderella. No, Cat in the Hat's not Disney. The cat from Cinderella. Um, oh, I'm totally blanking on his name. The one that would chase the mice. Yeah. Can't think of the name. I'm totally blanking on the Disney cat's names. Yeah. <laughs> but they had like three or four of the letters. But they got esoteric in it too because when it came down to M, it was Maximilian. Does anyone know who Maximilian is? Uh, um, it's not. He's not the prince, right? No, he was the evil robot from the movie The Black Hole. Oh God! <laughs> Set your yeah, and it was like everyone's like, "What's that one?" And I'm like, "I got that pin," and I'm like, "That's Maximilian." Because when I, when I was a kid, for whatever reason, I remember loving that movie. Oh, you have no taste. <laughs> <laughs> Was was one of them ever Maleficent? Is it that, like the um, first one? Because I I'm sure see that Maleficent as... was one of them at some point. She wasn't on that one because that M was specifically yeah. him. Maleficent is a huge yes collector thing. Yes. Um, both her is Maleficent and is the dragon. I have a friend who collects Maleficent, and he's just like, "This is crazy. I didn't think there were this many pins." Oh, hmm. I remember one of the first things that uh, when I first went on eBay, we had a um, annual pass. And they had the Maleficent dragon for sale for five bucks. And I put it on eBay and I was selling them for for 15. So I would buy them for five, go home, list them, sell them for 15. And I did that until they stopped issuing them. And I wish I would have saved some because now that dragon that I was selling for 15 is worth like 150 bucks. There was a set of pins that Disney came out with. They released one every month. It was, I can't remember the name of the set, but it was um, each pin had a movie cell in it, and it was actually the 35 millimeter movie cell. I remember cell. seeing those, yeah. I'm surprised you remember seeing them because they, the lines that people would go to, the lines that would form before the park opened for these things were ludicrous. Yeah. I remember seeing them. Uh, The one or two times that I ever took my son to Disneyland, I remember seeing those in the gift shop. Oh, really? (laughs) And thinking, well, this is dumb. It's like one image out of a... And I so I never bought any. The the thing with them was um, the first couple they came out with, people didn't really jump on the bandwagon much. But then they found out that... What they did is they would take, I think it was a limited edition. Each one was like 2,500 pins. And they would take 
cuts from a few different scenes of the movie. And depending on the scene of the movie that you got would determine the value of your pin. So it got to a point where it wasn't like, oh, here's a pin, here's a pin, here's a pin. No, no, I'm going to see this one. Nope, I want to see this one. I want to see the And watching people shoveling through them, and it's like, no. It got to a point that they set up a rule where they would give you six pins, pick one. <laughs> and that's it. Because they, they couldn't keep the lines moving with the people trying to get them. And people would fly through the parks. It's like, you know, 50 people run to this store, 50 people run to that store. But like one of the iconic ones was they did um, Snow White. One of the thi- one of the ones they got, and it was only a few pins that had it, had Snow White kissing Dopey on the head. No, oh. when she kisses his forehead. Those things skyrocketed because there are huge Snow White and Seven Dwarfs fans, and Dopey is like everybody's favorite. Yeah. So it's like they they'd go huge, they're ridiculous, hundreds of dollars. Yep. Hmm. I hate to admit it, but magic cards. Up. Oh. <laughs> so Scott collects magic cards. I collect the I, magic cards. I I remember when magic came out, and I was not, you know, I was married. I didn't have a a kid at the time, and uh, I was in the navy. And these other guys on the ship said, "You got to buy this stuff. You got to buy this stuff." It's nah, nah, nah. And I didn't. And uh, years later, I I got into it with my after my son had been born and and had gotten of an age where it became of interest to him. And so I started buying and I bought back a little bit. And uh, so I have a lot of early stuff. Um, Do you play I, though? Because it's a game. I I used to. Yeah. Uh, I haven't played in quite a while. I played all the time. My my son plays off and on now. Um, one of his dreams is to actually be a competitive player and and uh, compete in money tournaments. And you can make a living at this, which is amazing. But um, I mean, some of the early stuff that I bought, I bought it by the case. So I had and still have unopened boxes of some of the earlier stuff and uh, just going through extra cards I stuck them up on eBay and uh, there was one I sold a couple of years ago I ended up uh, one of the one of the top 10 guys in the world from Japan ended up buying a, a it was a, a play set of four of these cards straight out of the pack that had just been sitting in my box and I think he paid $150 a card for him I sold him four cards right off the top and but I pulled them out of packs because I bought a case of the of that particular set. Oh, I did. I did the same thing. And I, I mean, I probably got I don't know how many more that I could sell. And it's just a matter of getting them up on eBay. Well, the uh, in the very beginning, there was a very powerful card called the Black Lotus. And today, a Black Lotus graded ten which means perfect. Yeah. Sold for $27,000. Yeah. And everybody said the person got a bargain. <laughs> oh, I'm sure he did cuz yeah. you don't get tens out of those cards very often. Yeah. I mean on any card, let alone that card. Yeah. But um yeah, no I, I don't have that card and I I frankly would not splash out the money for it. 
Oh, I, I would go in there and I'd see the Moxes. Moxes are another powerful card. And they were like $50, $75. And then I saw them go up to $100. And I saw them go to $150. And it was like, holy mackerel. Now, now they're 1000 or more. Now they're $1,000. I yeah. mean, I, I've got a couple cards that, that book at 1000 or more. And uh, unfortunately, they happen to be in sets. And I don't particularly want to break the set to sell one or two cards. Well, I lost my goblin deck. I had a goblin deck. And I can't find it because I had all the valuable goblin cards. And now I can't find it. And that deck probably would be worth about a thousand bucks if I could find it. It's somewhere. I just can't find it. They had the basic set, the basic card set. And they went through a number of editions before they came out with an expansion set. And, uh, I didn't buy the first expansion set, but I was able to buy a complete unopened box of the second expansion set. And out of one box, I got the entire set. Yeah. And uh, the next set was three times the size. I bought three boxes, and luckily, I got all but two cards. (laughs) Well, explain to people a little bit about how they do the packs, because it's a very interesting marketing way that they did magic cards it's incredibly different and well, uh, what what they did is they would put 15 cards in a in a pack you'd buy a pack of cards that had 15 cards and it had one rare card it'd have three uncommon cards and the rest would be common cards and um basically the way they printed them um they would print all of the rare cards but then they would only print so many of them then the, they would print three times as many for the uncommon cards and so that that's how they figured the rarity. And then they would have a, a a machine that put the packs together and it would just shoot one, three, and 12 11. Or 11, yeah, whatever. Into the pack and then it would seal the pack. And so supposedly you would get a random uh, assortment. But in well, reality. Well, I think you do. You, you do get it. But it. Every pack had a rare card. In. Every pack had a rare card. Yeah. Now, um, so you but but the way that was stacked, they, um, if you bought a box, you would typically get, uh, like with these larger expansion sets, you would get a third of the set, rare cards, and you might get one or two duplicates, but you'd basically get a third of the set. And if you were lucky enough, like I was, bought three boxes and you got. Each third, um, then you just have to buy one or two cards if you wanted a complete set. Um, but most people weren't collecting sets. They were trying to collect, get cards to play. And those were the valuable ones. Right. You could have two rare cards. Well, uh, we were talking about baseball cards earlier and there's a, uh, well, they, they started doing the same thing with baseball cards and it kind of followed the same well, uh, or a similar type of... But I'm talking about earlier. You'd have a set of cards, and you'd have Babe Ruth, and then you'd have Torge Bordson. And there's exactly the same number of Babe Ruths as there are Torge Bordsons. Well, yeah, because they didn't know who was going to be popular. Oh, no, they did. They did. Absolutely. They knew but Babe Ruth got like four out of the uh, set. Babe Ruth had four cards. But... Every single card had the same number as every other card. In Magic, they don't do that. Every card is a different 
well, not every card is a different, but you have the commons, you have the uncommons, and you have the rares. And it's a game. So if you pictured like a deck of cards. Well, some cards are stronger in the right. game than other cards are. Like imagine buying a deck of cards and the four of clubs, you know, that's a cheap card. But the ace of spades, that would be an expensive card. And that's how magic goes. That's the economics of the... Well, you can have a common card. Like, like the card I was talking about in the expansion set that I that I, I sold for 150 bucks a pop actually turned out to be an uncommon card, which is why I had so many of them. It wasn't even the rare card yeah. in that set. It just happened to be a more powerful card that was not that that the similar function was not reprinted in a later uh, expansion. So people were going to the older set to get that card, and therefore the demand was higher, driving the price up. Yeah, there are. Well, I'm not going to get too technical, but there is an elf card, and these elf cards cost about two dollars each. Well, other from the same set for two dollars, you could probably buy two hundred common cards for the cost of that one elf card yeah because you need that card that's that's the ace of spades you want to make sure your deck has an ace of spades in it right and the the other thing about that game is that you design what cards go in your deck you don't just it's not like a regular deck of cards you don't just open a pack and that's the deck you actually look at the cards and each card does something different yeah. And so you read the text and you go, yeah, I'm going to use that card and I'm going to put it with this other card. And, and they kind of work together and become even stronger. And so you actually design your own play deck. Yeah. And that's part of the um, draw on that game is that you have control over how strong your deck is and, and what your deck. Uh, I mean, it's like designing armor or designing... Uh, well, it's yeah. like I said, I have a do goblin I, Do I deck. choose the sword or the shotgun? Yeah. I picked goblins, and I picked the best goblins, and I picked the correct land so that I can give the goblins power and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's picture uh, designing a deck of cards, and you go, wow, I want to have a lot of ace of spades and a lot of jokers. But then you go, well, if you have a lot of ace of spades and jokers, somebody who may go for, like, royal flushes will beat you. And so you go, oh, so my strategy is I have to be able to combat the Royal Flush and still have the Aces and Jokers. So you throw in extra cards and stuff. Yeah, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of planning, oh, and it is a hell of a fun game. And you know, it's, it's, it's a crapshoot because you can't plan for everything. Mm -hmm. You can't defend against everything and still have a winning strategy. Yeah. The, the object is to outguess your opponent. Cash broke his funny bone. I broke my funny bone. <laughs> what you get for playing with stuff <laughs> so anyway enough all, about the, what I, all the humor just fell out of the humorous uh, yeah i had a humorous now it's a broken humorous so enough about magic cards so what do you collect mark um i too collect disney pins but not the pins that are sold in the stores i collect the pins that are awarded to cast members for years of service 
Oh yeah, I remember you telling us about. So that. they're he brought they're, he brought them in this week. I got to see them. They're very cool. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. they're much smaller pins. They're not very attractive, but uh, most of them have dates on the the newest uh, uh, iterations have dates that say five years, ten years. Um, it goes up to forty five years. Um, the earlier pins didn't have didn't have numbers on them, but they had you know different designs and so forth. Some pins were Disneyland only. Some are Disney World. Um, but uh, but yeah, that's uh, it's sort of a, a, a side uh, sidebar to collecting Disney pins. Well, I collect two things: I collect letters, and I collect coins. And everybody knows about coin collecting. I, I well, do. You le- have the letter, whole alphabet. Letters should be easy. You only need twenty six of them. Do you have the whole <laughs> alphabet? <laughs> well, it's like. Uh, you know, I really like uh, patent, med- uh, patent medicine uh, stamps, but I don't really collect those. What I collect is I collect the letters and the um, invoices and the advertisements and stuff like that. So I go very much for the ephemera of uh, medicines from the 1800s and stuff like that because. It's uh, very interesting what people sort of put their faith in versus what people put their faith in today. Well, you'll yep. probably be really interested in uh, the Rumsey auction coming up in Sescal because there there's uh, several auction lots of private uh, um, dye ephemera. Yes, I saw that. Yeah, and uh, not only... The um, not only the advertising cards and so forth, but also even some of the bottles and uh, and packaging that uh, that the medicines came in. A while ago, I uh, put a lot into H.R. Harmer that had uh, Dr. Jane and Sons, and people probably know about Dr. Jane and Sons if you looked at the Scott's catalog. You see the stamps and stuff. What people don't realize is that Dr. Jane and Sons was one of the largest corporations in the United States. It, you know, you have like U.S. Steel, you have the, you know, the railroad companies, and then like number four, number five is Dr. Jane and Sons. These guys were humongous, and people don't realize it. And, you know, selling hair tonic and... Uh, yeah, Pepto-Bismol and, you know, their version of it and stuff like that. The original Big Pharma? The original Big Pharma, yeah. Original Big Pharma was like the 1880s. And it was it's just amazing seeing the stories of, you know, what they were selling and w- what was in it. You know, it makes, makes me wish I knew more than I, than I used to back when I was a kid because my dad... Had my dad's a general contractor, and he had a client who did a lot of work in his estate. It was huge. This man owned a huge estate, but the site was an old trading post in Pennsylvania, and it actually had he actually had still in his foyer was the original grist mill. <laughs> And I mean, I would, as a kid, I would walk and stand on the center wheel. He had the bottom of it encased in concrete, and this thing must have been 16 feet around. But we did so much work around that area with excavating and digging and things like that. I found so many pieces of old china and bottles, and I'm just like, 
man, I wish I knew because like I don't know some of this stuff that was actually whole might have actually been worth some significant money. Well, I, I got a friend who lives in Memphis or near Memphis, and he goes down to the Mississippi, and uh, when the river's low, he goes and he looks and he searches through the mud and pulls out old medicine bottles. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's actually found a couple that are worth, you know, 50, 100, 150 bucks a piece. Oh. But, the, you know, just small bottles because they used to – they'd use them and then they'd just throw them in the river. Yeah, they were glass bottles. Nobody cared about them. It's, yeah. And this place was a trading post and had a working grist mill and travelers. So, was, you know, there was just – people just trashed everywhere. Yeah. Oh, well, they're doing that right now with the Thames but, in but, England. They're but the nice excavating th- out the sides. Yeah, but the nice thing is he's finding intact bottles where you can actually see the embossed. Because in the glass, they, yeah. when they made them, you would they have, have the names. They have, have the names on them. And so that's how he's able to identify them. And those are the ones that are worth the money. Oh, you, they're... If but, they're large companies, but, absolutely. I mean, undamaged bottles from, yeah. from you know... 1800s is pretty uh, pretty interesting. Golden centaur salve and uh, um, merchant's gargling oil and stuff. People, These <sighs> things, you'll recognize them from the stamps. You'll go, oh, I recognize that stamp. These are the bottles of the stuff that was sold with them. You know, that revenue yeah. stamp went on top of this bottle yeah. or it went in this box. Yep. If that's the case, I want to see the size of the bottle for the Galvanic horse salve because that stamp is monstrous. It, 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 <laughs> it's probably oh, a jar, not a bottle. No, it was probably a It's a box, and a lot of them had wrappers, that the actual revenue stamp was a wrapper. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it, it they that's why when you get revenue stamps, if they're torn in half, you go, oh, yeah, well, that's well, how, they, that's well, how you find them. Well, a lot of times, because um, think of like uh, a wine bottle. Instead of having a, and then over the top of the cork, you would have this paper label or yeah. stamp. And then the idea was you would either twist the cap or pull the cork or something, and it would tear the stamp, invalidating it. Right. And uh, so when you find these things and they're being sold and they've been, uh, you know, put back together, um, that's an acceptable thing for those who collect those kind of items because it shows that they were used. And, uh, I mean, obviously it's nice to find them not damaged, but, uh, the way they're valued in the catalog is with faults. Um, Well, I hopefully small faults, not, you know, completely torn in half and then reattached, but, or put back together. Well, actually some of those are, I found a, um, Dr. Jane and Son's box. And it had one of the rare silk papers. There were only like 20 of them known, you know, they cataloged $1,000. But it was only half of it. The other half was on the flap. The flap is missing, but the other half is on the box. And in spite of it being literally half a stamp, it still sold for a couple hundred dollars. It's because it was on the box. Yeah. If you had taken it off the box, it would not have sold for that much. Yeah, that's true. Yes, definitely. But so, yeah, I I really enjoy that sort of stuff. I like the economic history of stuff. You also like making money, so. (laughs) Yeah, but but that stuff tends, the only weird, it was a weird thing. 
I sort of had it for a long time and then parted with it, my Dr. Jane and Sons collection, but I didn't part with everything. Um, most of it, I find it, and it disappears into the black hole of the Cash collection. <laughs> <laughs> and I had to look it up while we were talking. It's uh, Lucifer was the Disney cat, Cinderella. Ah. Ah. And he was L in that alphabet. Got it. Lucifer. Well, anything else, or are we done with this dog and pony show? I'm uh, done. We could be done. So click on the link and uh, learn yep. more about Jefferson Burdick. Yeah, go to the website. We'll put it on the website. But Vsauce2, spelled exactly the letter V, sauce. S-A-U-C-E. With a two. A number two. And then the invention of collecting. It is an incredible YouTube video. Check it out. Tell us what you think. Uh, I think you'll love it. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been Stamp Show Here Today, episode number 233. This was Tom. This was Cash. This was Scott. This was Mark. You have been listening to Stamp Show Here Today, seeking to advance all levels of the stamp collecting hobby through news, information, and collecting advice. Visit us at stampshowheretoday.com to listen to the show, view images of the items we are talking about, and read the show notes. You can also continue the conversation on Facebook at Stamp Show Here Today and on Twitter at Stamp Show HT. If you have questions or comments about the show or have any topics you would like us to discuss, you can email us at stampshowheretoday at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and as always, keep collecting. Stamp collecting happens when we dream together.